How bad is life for women in the Arab world? We hear about forced marriages, widespread sexual harassment, driving bans. The list goes on. There's no doubt the region is far from being a model of gender equality. But are critics too eager to brand Arab women as helpless victims? My guest tonight sparked outrage when she wrote an article saying the root of the problem is that Arab men hate women. But is that an unfair and sweeping accusation or simply the inconvenient truth? I'm Mehdi Hassan, and I've come here to the Oxford Union to go head-to-head -head with journalist, activist, feminist Mona El-Tahawi and challenge her on whether her rhetoric is helping or hurting the cause of women's rights in the Middle East. Tonight, I'll be joined by a panel of three experts. Dr. Etimad Mohanna from the London School of Economics Middle Eastern Centre, Dr. Taj Hage, a progressive imam based in Oxford, and Dr. Shuruk Nagib, who teaches Islamic and Gender Studies at Lancaster University. Ladies and gentlemen, Mona El-Tahawi. A committed feminist for over 20 years, she's perhaps the most provocative voice out there on the issue of misogyny and the Middle East. Thanks for coming. Mona, is your view that there is a war being waged on women in the Arab world? Absolutely, Mehdi. I mean, when 12-year-old girls are dying, giving childbirth in Yemen, when 91% of Egyptian girls and women have had their genitals mutilated, when 16-year-old girls in Morocco are forced to marry their rapists so that their rapist can escape conviction, that is nothing short of a war. So who is waging the war in your view? Well, I think it's a misogynist society. I think, and this is why I made the point in my essay, or asked the question, and some people have I've told me you haven't answered it, but perhaps we can answer it today, because it's my contention that there is a hatred for Arab women. There is a hatred for women in the Middle East and North Africa that plays out in these horrific statistics that we hear. Most people would agree that the status of women's rights in the Arab world it's pretty abysmal right now. But when you say that men, quote, hate women, some might say to focus on that feeling is a cop-out because it enables you not to have a much more complex discussion about, say, poverty, tyranny, ignorance, lack of education. You gloss over all that and say, it's them versus us. It's men versus women. It's hate. Well, when you look at the countries in the Middle East and North Africa, or just for simplicity's sake, the 22 countries of the Arab yes. League, some of them are as rich as, say, the United Arab Emirates and Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and some of them are as poor as Yemen and Somalia. The thing that unites the Middle East and North Africa or the Arabic-speaking countries of that region is this hatred for women that plays out differently. So whether you're incredibly rich or you're incredibly educated or you're incredibly poor and not educated, you're still suffering as a woman. It's interesting you talk about the unity uh, of the 22 members of the Arab League. It's I mean, the one thing. I mean, well, it's interesting because... <laughs> That is another criticism that's been raised and that you've had to deal with, is that you treat the Arab world as monolithic. 
uh, you treat Arabs as homogenous, as all the same. You say Saudi Arabia mm -hmm. uh, is a misogynistic country. Morocco, you might say, is a misogynistic country. But of course, the driving ban is only in Saudi Arabia. No other Arab country bans women from driving. No other country in the world, I believe, bans yes. women from driving. It's a Saudi-specific issue, yes. and yet you're holding it up as an example of Arab misogyny. It's basically the guardianship system, not just the driving ban. But I don't gloss over the differences because what I do is I, I expressed in the essay and in later interviews the various ways that the misogyny plays out. So I'm not saying, I mean, there is, it would be ridiculous to suggest that Saudi Arabia is exactly like Yemen. But what does unify them again? I mean, if you look at, for example, the World Economic Forum publishes annually the Global Gender Gap Index, where they look at things like education and political yep. opportunity and all of that. Uh, they list 136 countries, and 14 of the Arab League countries are in the bottom, the, the bottom 36 of that 136. These are not my figures. I did not make this up. Newsweek did a league table of countries, yes. and they found of the 25 worst countries to live in the, in the world as a woman, yes. there were two Arab countries in there. Now, no one's glossing over what's wrong. As I said, we both agree yes. the situation is not great. Yes. But you imply that it's somehow worse in the Arab world than anywhere else, rather than Sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia. Let's take one example. Let's take okay. one example. Uh, female circumcision or female yes. genital mutilation, FGM, yes. which is something you, you we, I think we both agree we would abhor that practice. Absolutely. It's a practice that needs to be stopped. Most scholars say it's more of an African practice than it is an Arab practice. Again, you hold it up as exhibit B or exhibit C of your Arab misogyny. I think it's not fair to all of the Arabs who don't practice it, who no, abhor it. Of course not, but that, again, that's why I've given That's different examples. Moment. No, it's not a generalization. I've said each country has a problem with women's rights. Overall, the region is very bad, and as I said, according to that index, it's usually at the bottom when you talk about the global gender gap. But I've given that as an example from Egypt. It also is, happens in Sudan, it happens in Djibouti, it happens in Yemen, it happens in several countries. By no means have I said this is a specifically Arab thing. Okay, there is something that unites the countries in the Middle East that, mm -hmm. that is behind some of this, and that's political oppression. Mm -hmm. It's repression, it's a lack of democracy, yes. it's despotism. Yes. The issue is that dictatorships oppress everyone, men and women. Right. It's not a woman-specific issue. Yes. Mohammed Bouazizi, the Tunisian man yes. who set himself on fire, yes. which ignited the Arab Spring, he did so after he was slapped in the face by a police officer who was a woman. By a woman, yes. So, you know, when you look at someone like him or the mm -hmm. Egyptian protesters who lost their lives protesting, yes. it's not about gender per se, it's yes. about a lack of freedom which then affects the role of gender and women's rights, etc. Right. The bigger issue is a lack of democracy. Right. I'm so glad that you said that because that, that, it, we actually agree on this. Good. But I take it a step further because none of those revolutions that began in the Middle East and North Africa were about gender. They were about repression. They were about facing that regime. And that regime oppresses everybody. But here's the difference. Here's why that, or how that revolution impacted women differently than men. The women in Tahrir Square or the women in the various squares, whether they were in Yemen or in Bahrain or in Tunisia or Libya or Syria, when they looked that dictator in the eye and they managed to get rid of Ben Ali or Mubarak, etc., yeah. they then looked you know, to, the light, to the right and to the left and they realized that if the regime oppressed us all, our society oppresses us as women. And this is where our double revolution comes in. So what we've done basically is we, we started to tackle that political revolution that you say, rightly, oppresses everybody. But where we as women recognize we have to go now and without going that way, our political revolutions will fail, is that we need a social and a sexual revolution that looks to the, to the right and to the left and says, 
you oppress me specifically. Foreign policy boasts on its website that its, its main selling point is more than 18,000 influential people on, in the Washington DC area read it cover to cover in the White House, on Capitol Hill, the State Department, and the Pentagon. Why did you write your essay that caused such controversy in Foreign Policy magazine, a magazine aimed at the US foreign policy elite? No Arab magazine would have run that essay. I used to write a weekly column for two years for Sharq al Ausat newspaper. Wait, 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 let me finish, let me finish. The Sharq al Ausat newspaper, Saudi-owned paper, yep. they banned me. Yes. They banned me because my views were too liberal and too controversial. So no Arab magazine would have published it. But number two, how come so many people in the Arab world got so upset? That means that they read it, right? Foreign Policy magazine and a whole bunch of other magazines, they run every week essays that critique human rights violations, economic mm. corruption, all kinds of ills from the Arab world, and nobody gets this, this critique. But when it comes to women's issues, this bizarre cultural relativism kicks in, where our regimes, and I said this in my essay, our regimes put on this attitude of, hands off, these are our women, this is untouchable, it's none of your business. What I would like to see, when we talk about ethical foreign policies, I would like to see all these regimes that support our dictators, first of all, stop supporting our dictators, but, 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 this is a big but, do not give them aid, not just for human rights violations, but for gender rights violations too. And I mentioned Hillary Clinton specifically, to mention or to point out the hypocrisy, because when she was Secretary of State, she made a big deal about being a feminist Secretary of State. But when she would go to Saudi Arabia, she would never sit down and say to the Saudis, who are one of the biggest allies of the US, you treat your women like children, and I will not have that and be a big ally to you. But of course, it's hypo hypocrisy. Well, it's about reasons, oil. One of the reasons, one of the many reasons why people objected to the foreign policy piece, of course, was the cover, which I've brought yes. here. Yes. And I don't know how many of you can see it in the audience or at home. And uh, this is a cover, too, and, and there's the pictures of the whole little photos here. This yes. is a naked woman. Yes who has a niqab, basically a face veil, a veil, painted on her in black. Yes. It upset a lot of people. Yes. It's, some would say it's pretty offensive. It plays to all sorts of okay. traditional Western orientalist, yes. crude stereotypes of helpless yes. Arab women. So many people got so obsessed with this that, you know what, I said in the end, I don't care. And if it upsets you, that's even better. Because it makes people ask, what are the images that we have of Muslim women out there? And are we focusing on just the image or the substance behind the image? Another question that's often asked is why single out Arabs? You mentioned the league tables and discrimination, yes. but of course there are other countries on those league tables. Yes. And even Western countries, you would of course why? agree. Because, are not, because I'm an Arab. Are not, you're also an American. On average, yes. three and women every yes. day are killed by their spouse or partner. When will you be writing a piece in Foreign Policy magazine saying why they hate us about American Christian white men? Two things. When I go on US TV, I go on and, and I make it very clear that the kind of men on the religious right in the United States and the kind of men on the religious right in the Middle East and North Africa that I fight are both the same. And I basically say that they're, they're all obsessed with our vaginas as women. And that's a message that resonates. And that message resonates because we have... I've, I've, I've you say it's a message that resonates and yet you wrote a famous article and a book only about Arabs, not about those because, Americans. Right because now. right now, the issue, the issue for me, my obsession is the revolutions that have begun and as I told you, our political revolutions will fail unless we have social and sexual revolutions that push them into the home. Okay, I'm not talking about a revolution in the US right now. I'm talking about Egypt and the rest of the region. Okay, let's go to our panel uh, who are waiting here to uh, give their take on what they're listening to. Uh, Dr. Sharuk Naguib is a lecturer at Lancaster University Center for Gender and Women's Studies. She's one of uh, Britain's experts on Islam and feminism. Do you recognize this picture of the region? the revolutions and the consequences that Mona has painted. I do agree with you that you have the right to look Arab society in the face and say you are mis misogynistic, but do you see yourself as also having the right to speak for all 
all Arab women uh, and talk about we uh, having to uh, mount or uh, start a revolution uh, against sexual and uh, political discrimination in society. I feel that I'm very privileged in that, you know, I'm educated, I, I, I work, I write, I travel freely, and I believe that privilege obliges me to fight ten times as hard as someone who doesn't have that privilege. So if somebody can't speak for whatever reason, you know, when I was attacked in Egypt, 12 other women were assaulted on the same street where I was assaulted, but none of them have been able to speak for various reasons. Some have been silenced by their families, some of them are too ashamed to speak, and as a society we do not encourage women to speak out about violence or sexual assault especially. When those 12 other women cannot speak for whatever reason, and I can, it behooves me, it's my, I'm obliged to speak very, very loud because I understand they can't speak. I want to bring in Dr. Taj Hage, who is uh, chairman of the Muslim Educational Centre of Oxford. Uh, he's a self-described progressive imam. Dr. Hage, what's your reaction to what you're hearing from Mona? I think we should stop obsessive about the, the title, why they hate us. I think a better term would have been, why do they oppress us? Where does this oppression and suppression come from? It doesn't come from a vacuum. It comes from the misinterpretation of religious uh, uh, edicts and so forth. That's, that, that's where it comes from and that's why it's such a huge problem for the Arab world for the Muslim world and yes it may be happening in Papua New Guinea on Burkina Faso or wherever but that's not the issue here the issue here is this lady speaks I think on behalf of a certain sec segment of Arab society and she's entitled to say these things. Dr. Etemad Mohanna what's your reaction to what Dr. Hage is saying? Um, I mean I, I really thank um, Mona very much because you opened this opportunity you were so brave to open this opportunity for a debate. However, I can't be tolerant with your generalization. The generalization that you, you use in, in your article, it, it implies a humiliation. It implies insulting for our men. You don't know how Muslim I'm, Arab I'm men... I'm Egyptian. I'm there. I'm I Palestinian lived in Gaza, but you are Egyptian and middle class lived long time in Washington or in the United States. It was... But how long did you spend in Upper Egypt with life. poor and rural women? You, you don't rural, reflect rural, the actual life that poor women in Egypt live because I read many articles. You haven't mentioned anything about the reality of poor women's lives in Egypt. Okay, yep. let me tell you about rural areas of Egypt. We have girls as young as 12 and 13 who were trafficked into marriage with much older, wealthier men from the Gulf countries. This is a documented fact. We have sex trafficking of the daughters of the poor. We are selling our girls to rich men from the Gulf. I want to pick up on something Dr. Hage mentioned about the perversion of Islamic principles where in your essay you say, quote, Islamist hatred of women burns brightly across the region. Yes. Again, some might say a very unfair generalization in Tunisia, the Ennahda party. Yes. Almost half of its parliamentary party, women. Yes. Tawakkul Kamen, Yemen, yes. Nobel Prize winner, member of an Islamist party. What kind of policies are they You've pushing, Mehdi? What kind of policies are they pushing? When you look at the women of the Muslim Brotherhood, or let's look at the women of the Salafi Noor party, who, you know, because they were trying to counter accusations that they're misogynists and they ran female candidates, they ran a rose in place of a woman's face in their campaign literature. A woman is not good enough to run on their, or her face is such a sin that they have to run a rose for it. They use religion to justify this domination. When you speak to the women of the Muslim Brotherhood, they have said FGM, and these were 
parliamentarians, FGM, which is mutilation of the genitals, is a form of quote-unquote beautification. So how does that then fit with your thesis of men versus women, if women are also engaging in this? But, but this is what I was saying earlier, that the women understand what they need to say in order to be accepted in this. Women internalise their subjugation, Mehdi. This doesn't happen in a vacuum. When you're a woman who grows up in a society where you so understand what you need to say, first of all, to get that it's a bit tiny piece... You say that women who don't take the same course as you have internalised their wait, own subjugation. No, 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 wait, wait, wait. Some might say the same about you. This is... What have I internalised? The idea that I deserve to be free? I'm glad I've internalised this idea because I will not be subjugated. The world is monolithic and homogenous. I, when it comes to women's rights, it is. Often in, in Western countries. I, this, is, this is not a Westerner speaking, this is an Egyptian Muslim. And when it comes to women's rights, the Arab world unfortunately is quite monolithic when it comes to oppressing us as women. So here's my question to you. Millions and millions of women are voting for Islamist parties in these countries. How are you changing their minds? How are you persuading them to externalise their Well, the first and most important step is to actually look things in the eye and say, this is really bad, and stop apologising and stop being defensive. I'm hearing a lot of defensiveness here where I'm supposed to say, you know what, it's not that bad, but you know what, it, it's incredibly bad. And if we're going through revolutions and uprisings right now that are about freedom and dignity, the chance of our revolution were bread, liberty and social justice. You can't have any of those things when half of your population is treated terribly. These are revolutionary times. If you had to choose between living under a secular feminist dictator or a democratically elected Islamist government, which one would you choose? I don't... <laughs> This is the kind of binary that has taken our part of the world to ruin. Oh, come on, the woman it who wrote Why They binary. Hate Us can't talk to me about binary issues. <laughs> yes, I can. If I'm going to ask if you a binary question. I, I can. Well, I'm provoking you. Where would you rather live, under a fe feminist dictator or a democratically elected Islamist government? I would like to live in a country that has a constitution that guarantees a high enough ceiling of rights that is up here, that guarantees everybody rights, and doesn't put it so down here that I have to contort myself in order to fit. In Egypt, you underwent a horrific experience, which you've written about and spoken about, uh, where you were assaulted by state security forces, by, you say, by people in the crowds, in the revolutionary crowds, uh, sexually assaulted, arms broken. Yes. Absolutely horrific experience. Do you think that affected your decision yes. to take this stance, write this provocative piece, right. because of what you went through personally? I think it's really interesting that women are always accused of personalising everything. That, you know, when a woman is angry, oh my God, it's because you've had such a terrible life. Well, first of all, what happened to me was horrific and it made me angry. And of course I'm angry. I mean, who wouldn't be angry? Yeah. I spent three months with my arms in a cast. I couldn't write, I couldn't use my fingers. For, like, it, it hurt a lot. So this was the first essay that I wrote when I was finally able to write. So of course I wrote it in anger. But I've been a feminist since I was 19. I was sexually assaulted and had my arms broken when I was 43. What did I do in the intervening period? I didn't suddenly wake up and say, oh my God, I'm so angry because Egyptian police violated me. I've been angry since I was 19. And that anger was, was first planted in Saudi Arabia. My family moved to Saudi Arabia from the UK when I was 15. And to move to Saudi Arabia as a teenage girl, it was like the lights being turned off. And I understood that as a woman, I had two options, to lose my mind or become a feminist. Okay. And at well, first I began to lose my mind and then I became well, you a feminist. Are a, you, are a, <laughs> you are a feminist. You say you fight for Arab women to have as much freedom, as much power, as much agency as possible, yes. yet you support a blanket ban mm -hmm. on the face veil, on the niqab. Mm -hmm. Isn't that a contradiction? Feminism isn't about opening up something that then comes in and cuts feminism at the knees. I consider the niqab an erasure of women. I don't know who the individual woman is under that niqab. And when you look at the ideology that promotes the niqab, it is the antithesis of feminism. It doesn't essentially believe in a woman's right to do anything but cover her face. And yet, it wants to use the tools of feminism to defend that right. That's the contradiction right and, there. And your critics would say, even if that were all true, you want to use illiberal means 
despotic means in order to further your feminist agenda by banning women, some of whom are forced to wear it, but others of whom choose to wear it. Right. Uh, let me make an outrageous and provocative remark, seeing that as I'm known you. for that. That would be unlike you. <laughs> okay, if somebody chooses to be a slave, am I supposed to support that choice because they chose it? What is this fetishization of choice? You think wearing an article of clothing is equivalent to being a slave? No, but this is why I said I'm going to be intentionally provocative now. I'm not comparing well, that the Nicarta to slavery. Not relevant. <laughs> no, it is relevant because you're talking, you're asking me to respect choice regardless. I'm telling you this is a choice to erase women. Let me bring in our panel again. Dr. Naguib, you don't wear a face veil, but you wear a headscarf. Um, the face veil does limit women's exposure to society, interaction. Mona has a point there, does she not? Uh, the uh, banning of the niqab or thinking of niqab as an erasure uh, of women uh, in the public sphere particularly, again presupposes that female agency in public has to take a certain shape. So you're imposing your own view of how female agency or female presence should be in the public sphere on a lot of other women who would express their agency differently. Uh, and in that, I think you're, you're being a fundamentalist feminist uh, and in, in a very repressive way for other women. Just on that last point. If you were sitting on that bench right now and talking to me in this discussion and your face was covered, our dynamic would be very different. We as human beings, nonverbal communication plays a huge role in the way that we communicate. This isn't just about me and my personal discomfort. This is about human communication. Yeah, when you cover your, your face. The question is, you want to use illiberal means, a ban. The question is, we're not having a debate essentially about the niqab. That's oh. a debate for another day. The question is, your means that you're advancing is a yes. ban. Some would say, including human rights, because that's fundamentally illiberal. Good, for the greater good that of our Discussion. for the greater good. Uh, Dr. Hargate, am I right in saying that you don't like the face veil so much that you once threatened to burn it in public? I did, actually. You did uh, burn you yes, burned it? but I think, the, firstly, we need to do, uh, use the proper words. I don't call it the face veil. I call it the face mask, because that's what it is. It's a mask. We should stop pussyfooting around and using nice terms like veil. We're, and where does this drive for this face masking come from? It doesn't come from women. It comes from men. It comes, it comes from men. It comes from these male mullahs, fukaha, ulama, clergy, whatever. And since the, uh, the, the word niqab, burqa, is not even in the Quran, since this practice uh, predates Islam, but you would the time of the time of Cyrus the Great, and so, so it's, it, since it's pre-Islamic, since it's non-Quranic, automatically, I think in the religious terms, it is non-Muslim. So but that's not the question. Would no, you ban it what in the I name would, of feminism? Yes, because I'll, I'll tell you why I would ban it. Because in this country, in this country, you and I, man, they can't walk down the street and go to Barclays Bank or anywhere else and go change some money. They're wearing a, a, a ski mask. These three ladies and the rest of the women here, they can go. So here we have now gender inequality. We are supposed to be living in a gender equal society. Why is it right for women to, to conceal their identity in public and not right for men to conceal their identity in public? Either everyone conceals their faces or no one does. In the past, you've described yourself, I think, as, quote, on the far left, you said in one yes. of your, your interviews, you're a liberal, you're on the yes. left, you don't like the political right, and yet some of the language you use does, wittingly or unwittingly, it uh -huh. does feed not just the right, but the far right, especially here in Europe. It feeds an agenda, whether you like it or not, you're fueling some of the people who really just want to bash and hate. But I attack them just as I attack, attack the, the religious right on the Muslim side. I place myself in every article I've written about the niqab especially. I say very clearly, I place myself in the middle between two right wings. There is a 
right wing, the xenophobic political right wing in Europe and in North America, but there's also a right wing within the Muslim community that nobody wants to talk about or very few people want to talk about. And that's why I take it as a point of pride. Mm -hmm. Wait, wait, I take it as a point of pride to call myself I'm a liberal feminist. Yes, I'm a liberal feminist and I'm an extremist liberal feminist because it's unpopular to be a liberal feminist because we keep pussyfooting around and apologizing for the abhorrent way that we treat women. You are a liberal feminist who's happy to use illiberal means to advance your agenda. When it comes to the disappearance of women, yes, okay. because I will not allow something to cut feminism at the knees and then I'm told, what kind of feminist are you? I'm a feminist who believes in the right to choose and what are you choosing to disappear women? And you're using feminism to, to justify that. Okay. That's ridiculous. Well, we're going to have to take a break right there. This is a very interesting discussion. We're going to be talking in part two about Islam and feminism. We're also going to be hearing from our very patient audience here at the Oxford Union who will have their questions and comments to Mona Al-Tahawi. Join us for part two of Head to Head. Welcome back. You're watching Head to Head on Al Jazeera. We're here in the Oxford Union with our guest today, Mona El-Tahawi, journalist, activist, feminist. Uh, we're talking about feminism and women's rights in the Arab world. Mm -hmm. Just on the religious mm -hmm. angle to all of this, and yes, the shadow of Islam hangs over much of our discussion yes. about the Arab world and women's rights. So, Mona, let me ask you this. Would you describe yourself as an observant Muslim, as a practicing Muslim? I hate those kind of questions because I think for, for any Muslim, the only question is, are you a Muslim? And as far as I'm concerned, if you self-identify as a Muslim, that's all anybody needs to know. What do you mean by self-identify as a Muslim? It sounds to, nice. What does it actually mean in practice? To, to say, I'm a Muslim. That's it. And, so and then when, when, you see, when people ask you these observant questions, I know what the, the goal of this is. You're trying to put people in a box and say, oh, you're that kind of Muslim. Oh, you're that kind of Muslim. All you need to know is that I'm a Muslim. And that's essentially what the Prophet well, said. You've used the phrase also progressive. Muslim. Yes. So you put yourself in a box? Well, in that label, as long as I choose the, the box. Okay. As long <laughs> no. as you're provocative, as long as you choose the box. Okay. But people want to take it further than that. And they do want to know things like, so do you pray, so do you fast? And I say, it's none of your business, because I know that that is the beginning of a slippery road to A, judging, and B, dismissing everything I have to say. So it's nobody's business. Well, you All judge you need a lot know, of people. You've judged conservative Muslims in one sweeping phrase. If they're going ago. to be misogynist, of course I'm going to judge them. Okay. And you don't think I get judged? Have you, seen, have you um, seen my Twitter feed? I get judged every minute. I have indeed. We talked about the niqab. We talked about the niqab and the face veil in part one, and you mentioned in that discussion uh, that you used to wear the hijab, the yes. headscarf. Yes. Um, I'm just wondering, did you stop wearing the headscarf because you thought it's not an Islamic necessity, it's not a requirement, or did you stop wearing it because you thought, I don't care if it's an Islamic requirement, I'm a feminist and I don't want to wear this illiberal anti-woman article No, I actually stopped wearing it because I didn't believe it was an obligation. And it was actually Leila Ahmed and Fatma Mernisi, you know, the Moroccan yes. sociologist. And it was both their books that were very instrumental in my moving away from the hijab. Because when I first started to wear it, I was 16 years old in Saudi Arabia, struggling mightily with life in Saudi Arabia, where I, I honestly felt besieged by the way men treated women there, by the sexual harassment that happens on the street, by the way men look at you, and I just wanted to hide. And so I thought, you know, and I, and I was losing my mind. I, was, I fell into a deep depression because of the way I felt in Saudi Arabia. So I thought, you know, they keep telling me that I should wear a headscarf. They keep telling me that this is what a good Muslim girl should do. So I'll do it. But very soon after I began to wear the headscarf, I felt very uncomfortable wearing it. But I struggled with that guilt. And nobody talks about that guilt that Muslim women feel. When I, so I say I wore the headscarf for nine years, and it took me eight years to take it off. 
Would you support a ban on the hijab? Actually, no, as you I don't, because it's very difficult. Because for me, it's about the face. Because in hijab, I can recognize you. You are the person that you are. My problem with the niqab is the disappearance of women, as I've said. You mentioned Laila Ahmed, Fatima Munisi. Is mm. your view, mm. as a Muslim and mm. as a feminist, mm. do you think Islam goes hand in hand mm. with feminism? Would you call yourself an Islamic feminist? There was a time when I called myself an Islamic feminist, but I no longer do. Now I call myself a Muslim and a feminist. But I do belong to a movement called Musawa, which is the Arabic word for equality. And it's a movement that was launched in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia in 2009. And it's a movement for, the just, for equality and justice in the Muslim family. In most countries such as mine, Egypt and others, that basically have so-called modernized their legal system, the one area of the law that still abides by the various Islamic interpretations followed in that country is, is, uh, is family law. So things like marriage, divorce, inheritance, mm. all of that. And it's incredibly misogynist. Musawa has women like Amina Wadud, who led that mixed gender yes. Friday prayer that I pray behind, where it was a woman leading men and women praying side by yeah. side. Amina Wadud describes as herself as an Islamic feminist. I stopped because when I realized that we would get into these endless arguments of my verse versus your verse. And I didn't want to get into my verse versus your verse, because they'd always pull something out. And then the last thing they would use is, well, you don't even wear hijab. So I was always, always marginalized just because it's I was a woman view. or not wearing hijab. Is so your, I don't play that game anymore. Okay, well, is your view that Islam is an inherently patriarchal vision, or is it that men have come along and inserted patriarchal interpretations into a faith that's not patriarchal? Well, Where I, do you stand? You know, my views have, have evolved, and I think the latest place, and, I, and I'm, I'm sure they're going to continue to evolve, I, I would hope everyone's views continue to evolve, but my views right now are most, or actually all religions are essentially patriarchal. All of them, because when you look at Christianity, you look at Judaism, you look at Hinduism, I think all religions are basically, give, give a free ride to men. And I think that it, it falls on the shoulders of women who choose to remain so in those religions all religions, so mm -hmm. let me just try and nail this down. You're a believer in Islam, you're a yes. believer in God. Yes. So is God patriarchal? Is it God who's made the, is God misogynistic? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lots of yeses coming from the crowd. <laughs> um, I haven't spoken to God lately, but um, if you look at the way we're told God spoke, then yes, God is patriarchal. But, but here's our challenge. My challenge now is to think, okay, what is my concept of God if I'm going to continue believing in God? And my concept would be that is, it is a just God. And if it is a just God, then the way that all religions are practiced right now are completely unjust. And you said you believe in the prophet as well as mm -hmm. part of the declaration of faith. Mm -hmm. Again, a lot of people in the West now would say, for example, that the prophet was an evil person, the prophet mm -hmm. of Islam was a misogynist, it mm -hmm. all began with him. Mm -hmm. Is that a view you share? Well, my view that I like to share of the prophet is when he married Khadija. Khadija employed him. Khadija was a rich divorcee. Khadija was 15 years older than him, and she proposed to him. And, you know, the, and the prophet was okay with that. He married a woman who was 15 years older than him, much richer and much more powerful than him, and she remained his only wife until she died. And and she was, a, she was the first Muslim. So if the first Muslim, that this man that we consider our prophet, if, if the first Muslim was his much older wife, that that is the image of the prophet that I hold on to. Okay, well, let's go back to our panel on this. Uh, Dr. Hage, as a progressive Muslim imam, I think you call yourself, do you see Islam as a patriarchal faith? We need to cut out the middleman. The middleman is who? They're all males. Males tell women how to dress, how to cover their face, cover their hair, and so forth and so forth. Now, for example, when come to the hijab, you know, the average man in the audience and out there, are they interested in a woman's hair? Hell no. Only women are interested in a woman's hair. 
You know, for, uh, for, for, for the average man, as long as the woman have everything else there, that's fine. So this idea of the hijab, the word appears eight times in the Quran, but not once they talked about women's hair. The word niqab and burqa, as we mentioned, is not even in the Quran. Let me ask Dr. Nagiv, what do you think when you hear about all the talk about progressive Islam and reforming Islam and getting rid of the patriarchy? The tradition is dominated by men, but it wasn't always dominated by men. Uh, there are precedents by Khadija, Aisha, and throughout the centuries there were women scholars, women interpreters and transmitters of the tradition who left this stamp. And as a scholar of Islam, I can say with confidence that there are many sites of hope within the Islamic tradition where women have managed to uh, uh, hinder uh, a further stringent interpretation of the tradition. But to keep indicting religion, keep indicting it as patriarchal, misogynistic, male-dominated and not do anything about it, rather adopt a foreign paradigm. Musawa is not a foreign paradigm. Musawa is a movement made up of Muslims from all over the world. It was launched in Malaysia, one of the biggest Muslim countries. So there is no foreign paradigm here. This isn't about the West trying to turn Islam upside down. These are Muslims who are facing some of the most problematic areas, which are family law, which are incredibly unjust when it comes to girls and women. Progressive Muslims are the ones who tell conservatives you don't own the religion, that you're not the only authentic types out there. Dr. Mahana, there's a, a spokeswoman for the Muslim Brotherhood called Sondas Asim, who's said that religion, Islam, can be a key force, a key driver uh, against gender-based violence. Is that a view you share, that, is, that Islam and Islamic institutions can be used in the struggle for gender equality? Religion is a very, very uh, strong moral source of power for women, and they use religion in order to equalize their relationship with men. Organizations and movements like Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood do not believe in gender equality. The fact that they are not they in position... They the don't have to. You don't have to? They no, don't no. have to. Well, as a feminist, as I will critique them on that. Exercise their These power. Women and they how, mean, there is, how do they exercise? Do you accept can, that there's a transfer, clash between empowerment can I finish, can I finish and equality? No, I need to finish my point. Okay. How do these women exercise their power if they hit the ceiling constantly and they're told because of religion, because of the politics of the movement, because of the culture, they can't go any further? Wait, wait, wait. And the you're definition of power that you, know, you have is different than mine because power... If men make all the decisions, that is power. This what is what the, power do you want? That you decide what food you buy power. in your supermarket? Come you're, on. You're saying you want women to make decisions. When I talked about earlier women in Muslim Where? Islamist parties, yes. you didn't like the decisions they were making. Well, they were making decisions that empower men at their expense. They're saying things like FGM is beautification. But isn't that, isn't that one of the problems Dr. Mahan has identified? She's, that she's calling a, that power. But I'm saying that's power to abuse women for, the, for, the, for, the, for men. Why? I will not respect this. No one's asking you to respect it. I'm asking, is there a clash between empowerment and strict equality? You can empower women in some parts of the world, and they won't produce a strictly equal society, this as is, we see in some countries. This is not empowerment. This is not empowerment. This is piecemeal. Exactly, and not okay. just that. Well, Can I make one very, very, very quick point? When we have these kind of discussions, we're all operating within privilege. We're all educated, we, we can all eat, we can all, nobody threatens our lives, okay? Because of that, people forget that there are others who have much, much less. What I'm trying to do in my writing, and when I get this angry, what I'm trying to do is remind people that there are lots of people out there who have much less, who don't have the privilege or the right to sit her on a stage with you, to tell you that her father and her mother decides that her genitals are cut, that she, at the age of 16, ends up committing suicide because she has to marry her rapist. Where is the power here? This is, I hate the word empowerment anyway, because it means nothing. Okay, let's bring in the audience. Let's go to that lady there at the back on the left side of the audience. Yes, you. You don't need to look around. It's you. I'm fearful that there are so many women 
who so agree with you when it comes to the fact that women should be able to drive and should be able to vote and shouldn't have to be subject men in the room who agree with that including that absolutely absolutely um, but the moment that those women and men hear that their fathers or their husbands or their boyfriends are misogynists, they stop listening to you. It, it's not about individual husbands and fathers, because you know a lot of women would write to me and say, but my father doesn't hate me. It's not that simple. It's about men and, and boys basically being, being made to be these misogynists because of the culture and the way it's mixed in with religion. To get to that, though, we have to agree as women that we have that right to speak out. We have to agree as women that we have to stop being defensive and politically correct about this. And then we get to the men. But if I haven't even solved any of this, if we're still arguing that women who have no decision-making uh, abilities are empowered, how am I then going to get to the men? I'm going to go to the lady here in the face veil. Um, Salam alaikum. Um, I think your passion is an inspiration for me. There's a lot of things that you stand up for that I stand with you, but obviously the face veil is something that um, grieves me. And the question that I want to ask you really is that when you learn that you're interrupting my journey and my right to wear the veil, um, would you, you know, decide to actually stop um, speaking out against it, just like when you was wearing your headscarf and it took you eight years, mm -hmm. it shows that it would take a lot to undo if it is an injustice that has been mm -hmm. put in by men. Will you continue to stand up against it when you learn that actually there are a lot of women that want to wear the veil? I don't think I would change my position. I mean, I appreciate you being here and I appreciate you discussing this with me, but you know, you know that we both disagree deeply. And I don't think my position will change. I think that in order, for, if someone wants to make that journey, obviously I cannot make that journey for them. But my, my, my views on the niqab are based on my principles about women and their visibility in society, but also our ability to communicate. Because I'm sure that if your face wasn't covered, our dynamic would be very different. So I ask you also to consider that. Let's go back to the audience. Lady here in the headscarf in the front room. What you are saying, contradicts with my real life. I have never been oppressed. Mm -hmm. My friends have never been oppressed. I lived in the US, I lived in rural Egypt, I lived in Cairo, and I lived in upper Egypt. Mm -hmm. What you're referring to is minor cases, like when you speak about uh, fathers selling their girls for the Gulf men, you cannot generalize about it and say like men, uh, women are being oppressed because it's a very minor case that you're referring to. When you speak about men why they hate us, when my father tell me, like, come early, I see him. He's protecting me, not hating me. Can I interrupt? I'm sorry. Why does he need to protect? What is he protecting you from? He's protecting me. Maybe there are thieves in the street. Someone is going to rob my mobile phone, for instance. How old are you? I'm 23. And, and would you do the same to your brother? Yeah. <laughs> Men in Egypt don't have curfews. You know that. You are seeing it from only one side. I've been to Tahrir Square, and when you said like women are being insulted or in Tahrir Square, men have been insulted as well. They have been beaten up. I have seen many men have lost their own lives in order to protect okay, women. Okay, come back because I want to bring more people in. You made a very strong point. You want to respond to a couple of points. Generalizations. Yes. Yes. Seeing it only from one point of view. I did not make those indices that show that there are huge gaps when it comes to gender equality in the Arab world. These are not minor issues. I'm glad that you have a good life. I'm glad that you have not been oppressed. And I'm glad that your father doesn't hate you. But it's not about you and it's not about me. It's about a lot of other women out there who have none of the privileges that we have and who nobody thinks about. Just because your life and my life are privileged and comfortable does not mean that we forget about the other women. Let's go back to the audience. Uh, let's go to gentlemen here in the green shirt. 
The question I want to ask you is, when it comes to actually implementing your beliefs or ideas, how do you reconcile that with the principles of democracy, so i.e. one woman or indeed one man, one vote? Yeah. And if you're unable to do so, um, do you not think it's a dangerous position to hold to say you know what it means to be free more than someone else? I'm not saying I know what it means to be free than someone else, but I'm saying that I want a ceiling of rights that is high enough to include as many people as possible, but also not to use this idea of she's choosing to be that way as a way of undermining feminism. How you implement this, I mean, there are ways to do this. One of the major demands of feminist groups in Egypt right now is a quota in our parliament. Because Come right on. now... Mano, when, when wait, I said wait. to you the Tunisians have almost half their parliament, or a third of their parliament and women, half the number, you said, but they're not voting for the right things. Mehdi, there is a difference between a woman in parliament who says that FGM is beautification and a woman in parliament who is actually concerned with the rights and well-beings of girls. This is going to be a problem with quotas, of course, because there are, there are going to be women who are voted in who have very conservative views who are not going to help the rights of, of girls and women. But what we hope to achieve through a quota is to normalise the image of women in politics, but at the same time as this is happening, because this isn't the only solution, at the time, same time as this is happening, we have this revolution go into the home, where women are challenging their fathers and their brothers, and where the brothers and their fathers themselves are challenging views that for such a long time allowed them to treat girls and women like this without even thinking. Let's take some more audience members. Uh, lady there in the, in the back row there, yes, with your hand up. I think the issues you're taking on are no doubt to be commended, very brave, and I think, you know, I wish more people would. I just don't think you're acknowledging or answering that actually by going about it in this way, you're actually putting people off completely, you know, taking this approach, taking this kind of us versus them, men versus women approach. I really struggle with this kind of extreme way of dealing with these issues. It's up to you to choose where along a spectrum of activism you decide to stand, because I've already chosen my, my position, and, and my position has always been, as long as there are extreme elements in my society and in my culture and in my religion who are willing to basically strip women of as many rights as possible, I will be on that extreme end. What you choose to do with your position is up to you, but I'm hoping that because I'm pulling on this end, it opens up a bit of space for you. You don't have to have the exact same views that I have. You can say, oh, Mona's crazy. She's way out there. I'm not going to be that way out there. But you have to decide. We, you know, people keep talking about agency. It's up to you to decide where you are. But I have decided to take what many consider an extreme position, and I'm proud of that. What I see my role as being is a provocateur of someone out here who will say things that few other people will want to say, who will be controversial, because I believe that it is the role of a writer and somebody who considers the words that she uses as being part of her activism to disturb people and to hurt, to find the place where it hurts and to push. That's what I believe my role is. Okay, let's go back to the audience. Uh, who's got questions here? <laughs> Lady here in the front row. Thank you very much for all your efforts. I don't want to say that you know, I don't appreciate what you're trying to do in highlighting these issues. My concern with your analysis, however, is that by characterizing this as very much an Arab or a Muslim problem, I think you're overlooking the fact that this is really about patriarchy, which is, in the end, a universal phenomenon. And I think the question that we need to be asking ourselves, and which a lot of people have reacted to, isn't why do men hate women, supposedly, but what is patri patriarchy actually about? Mm -hmm. Some of the examples you give 
of so-called men hating women, I think are more actually about men trying to exert control over society in general, mm -hmm. like the virginity tests of uh, girls in Egypt. Mm -hmm. That's not the Egyptian army hating girls, it's the Egyptian army wanting to stifle dissent. Absolutely. A lot of the sexual violence in Egypt has to do with pushing women out of public space. But here's the point that a lot of people don't continue with these so-called virginity tests. The Egyptian military violated women in that way because it knows that Egyptian society accepts the idea of virginity tests. There are Egyptian families who will take their, their daughters to a forensic doctor and have him issue a certificate of virginity before she gets married. That, that's why I said that the, the, the oppression of women happens on the regime level and it happens on the street level. The two are connected, they don't happen in a vacuum. Lady there right in the corner, stick your hand up very high. Um, hi. First of all, I'm an Arab and I wanted to say thank you. We're very proud to have someone like you. And second, I wanted to respond to a couple of people in the audience who said that it's not really that bad and these are like minor cases and if you're in the middle class, you won't really face that. Well, I still have to go through sexism and I still have to go through inequality, gender inequality. Yeah, I'm not raped and yes, I'm not married off to someone at 16, but I am expected to be okay with not getting leadership positions in companies because I'm a woman while someone else is a man. Regardless of whether or not I graduated top of my class, double standards are present in everything, including sexuality and including where you get to go at night and why should someone have curfew? If we live in proper societies where there really is gender equality, do you think that you would have to go home early so that you'd be protected? No, you'd live in a society where you can walk on the street at the same time that a man can walk on the street. That's Thank all you. I wanted to say. Okay. Thank you. That's Thank you very much. We'll take, one, we'll take another question. Can I respond to very quickly? Very briefly. Very quickly. I want to take one more question. That's exactly why I asked the young woman here who said to me that her father does it out of protection and I asked her what, what does he need to protect you from? He needs to protect her from a misogynistic society. Um, you know what you said, I, most, most Arab countries, I think if not all, don't have laws against marital rape and very few of them have laws against domestic violence. So even when women's lives are threatened, regardless of class now, even, even, there are even some Arab countries where if you harbour a woman who is trying to escape an abusive husband, you yourself are taken to, to, to prison. That gentleman there, let's take a, a guy, second row there with the glasses on. Uh, I just want to say thank you. Uh, I applaud for what you're doing. As I, I suppose many people do here as well. And I do think that the problem needs to be addressed. Uh, there is an elephant in the room and I think there's this idea in the Arab world that we have to paint a picture that actually things are okay, we don't hang our dirty uh, laundry out for everybody to see. Mehdi, you know I respect you very much, but I think questions uh, regarding look at the picture and how the, story is being, how the story is being projected. Look at the picture that was on foreign, foreign policy online, where the, there was a half-naked woman uh, surrounded by six policemen, and she was beaten. Why wasn't there uproar about that? There shouldn't be uproar about that picture. There should be uproar about what's going on, about what happened, about what led to it. Let the issue be the issue. I don't think they're mutually exclusive, but good point. Thank uh, you. We'll take one more question. woman there at the back. Yes, we do. I'm straight up in the black top. In terms of pervading cultural and religious boundaries, particularly in the Arab world, between a Muslim feminist wearing hijab and a Muslim feminist uh, not wearing hijab, who would be more effective in pervading these boundaries and raising the roof in terms of raising political debate and raising the ceiling of women's rights? That's a good question. And I think that each of them has a role to play, which is why I was saying that Musawa has women who define themselves as Islamic feminists and, and those like myself who, who say feminism and, and Islam are like two separate things. I think that each has a role to play. We had a lot of diagnosis critique from you. And as I said at the start, I agree with you on much of your critique of what's wrong. Don't agree with everything. I think most people in the hall, most people watching at home would probably agree 
with regard to how abysmal women's rights are in the Middle East. Yes. The next question then becomes to you. We hear a lot of criticism, a lot of legitimate anger. Yes. But what are the solutions? What are the things right. that can be done? What Do you have a five-point plan? I have to disagree with you, Mehdi, that a lot of people will agree with me that things are bad because they don't. Okay. And I've heard it here over and over again. So our first hurdle is to actually acknowledge that it is that bad. This is one thing that a lot okay. of people do not let's, want to let's acknowledge. Let's just, just take a break for a second okay. and let's do a poll of the audience just so we're clear on this. Raise your hands if you think the situation for women living in the Arab world is bad. I think we're fine, Mona. Okay. The people who so ask what do we do? Well, you can focus that. on that in order to kind of score a point. Let's stick to I'm the not subject. To score well, points. then answer my question. What are the solutions? Point. What are the practical solutions that weren't in your okay. essay that you haven't really mentioned today? It's Give us a few of the things that you want to see happen. It's why I'm writing a book. We need legislation. Yeah. We need education. We need a different way of thinking. We need for for the women and the men. But I'm focusing on the women because we need to start with them. For the women who are out on the street, so courageously facing down these regimes to take that revolution home. But in order for them to do that, they need backing up. So we need legislation against sexual violence. We need legislation against domestic violence. We need women to actually feel safe and not have their lives threatened. You need like-minded people to win elections first to get that legislation. Well, we do. We need people who actually believe in legislation to protect women from violence, not protect women from the street because my father wants to protect me. No, to actually so that when someone violates me or assaults me, I can take him to a police station and have them take it seriously. Countries that do have high education levels, in the Gulf for example, women are more educated than men. There are more women on university campuses than men. But you know how many women are employed in Saudi Arabia? 14%. That's terrible. So we need to increase women's role in the workforce. Okay. We need to have legislation that gives them equality in the workforce. We need to protect them from violence on the street. We need to change curricula that encourages boys to think that they're going to be the only breadwinners because that is a burden on men, especially in countries that are poor. We need to encourage this idea that men and women together are, are keeping their homes alive. There's a whole list of things. Thank you very much for being provocative, for being extreme, for coming here to be on Head to Head. Thank you all for coming uh, tonight to listen to Mona and put your questions. Thank you all at home uh, for watching Head to Head tonight. Uh, this show will be back next week. Thanks for watching Head to Head on Al Jazeera English. <laughs>